I'm Richard Danzig. Welcome. Delighted to be here today with Jen Easterly, the head of the Cyber Infrastructure Security Agency for the United States government. Uh, my background is as a former secretary of the Navy, and I'm a senior fellow at the Hopkins, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. Jen, um, your background is particularly wonderful in the sacrifices you made to come and take this job. I have some sense of maybe you can just say a little bit about your life and times before you came to it. Great. Well, thanks so much. It's great to be with you, uh, Richard. So, yeah, I, I showed up at CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, uh, where we love security so much we had to have it twice in our name. Uh, showed up here last July. Uh, for uh, Before that, for about four and a half years, I was at Morgan Stanley standing up our cyber security operations and then uh, serving as the head of firm resilience. And then before that, I was in the government for about 27 years, uh, about two decades in the Army. I was in the intelligence community at the National Security Agency and then served in the, in the White House a couple times. So uh, lots of different experiences, but uh, one that brought me back to this job, which is really fantastic to be back in public service. Thank you for establishing your reputation for uh, accuracy by correcting me and my failure to include the second security in the title. Um, Jen, maybe you can say a little bit, speaking of security, we all, I think, uh, were very attentive to the possibility, many would have said the probability of Russian cyber attacks on our infrastructure. It doesn't seem as though there is nearly as much of that as we expected. Is that the case? And if so, why is it? I think it's important to recognize that um, much of the focus now is on Ukraine itself. And that's really where uh, Russia is focused, both from a cyber perspective, as well as obviously a kinetic perspective. Uh, and so I don't think we should close the door on potential threats here in the homeland to our critical infrastructure. We know that just disruptive malicious cyber activity is part of uh, the Russian cyber playbook. We've seen it for years. We've put out recent reports and advisories and alerts about it. Uh, and frankly, even before the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, we had been working with our critical infrastructure partners across all sectors to make sure that they understood the potential threat, the implications uh, of a Russian invasion, and that they understood how to mitigate risk to their businesses and their systems and their networks. And so we are continuing to work with the private sector, to work with our state and local colleagues. In mid-February, we stood up uh, a campaign called Shields Up. So if you go to cisa.gov, you'll see our Shields Up webpage. And it was really designed to be a one-stop shop resource for uh, anybody who wants to understand the threat environment and know what they need to do, whether it's a large or small business, whether you're a CEO or a board member, whether you're an individual, it's really important that all of us understand what the ramifications are uh, of this conflict to potential critical infrastructure here at home. And uh, we believe, just given some of the intelligence, uh, and the president talked about this a couple weeks ago, specifically about evolving intelligence that points to potential 
Russian attacks against the, the homeland, we believe we are still in a period where we have to continue to be vigilant about all threats and make sure that we are prepared to be able to respond and to recover from any sort of disruptive activity. I think that that's clearly the right posture. None of us can really predict the future and the fact that we haven't had these attacks is certainly in the quantity we expected is certainly no guarantee we won't have them in the future. I wonder though, besides the Russian focus on the Ukraine, whether a part of this in your opinion, as I think it would be in mine, is that we, this may be an example of successful deterrence, no deterrence is enduring forever, but that our capacity to respond in kind may remind Russia that they're at risk of being very distracted from the Ukraine if they get involved in a cyber war with us. What do you think about that? Well, I think uh, it's very hard to speculate, to be honest, in terms of uh, what the Russian government, what the Kremlin, what Putin himself is thinking. I, I think, you know, just seeing what's happening on a hour by hour basis, uh, I think there is a lot of focus right now in Ukraine. Uh, and certainly given all of the uh, very serious sanctions and the actions that have been taken by the U.S. Uh, and by our allies to impose costs for this illegal invasion, uh, I would expect that uh, the Russians and Putin himself are being mindful about uh, doing anything that is going to create even more punitive costs. And so I'm sure somewhere in the back of uh, somebody's mind or, you know, the potential for um, miscalculation and escalation, uh, just knowing that we and our allies, uh, certainly we have very formidable capabilities. But uh, I do think still there is uh, a reason to be uh, very vigilant, as I said earlier, Richard, because uh, there are multiple things that could happen if there were uh, attacks that are specifically focused on Ukraine. Uh, those could have cascading impacts. Uh, we, of course, saw the 2017 attack uh, of NotPetya, which was destructive malware masquerading as ransomware. Uh, and that ended up uh, rippling around the world, affecting many multinational corporations to the tune of $10 billion. So there could be cascading impacts. Uh, and then there could be uh, ransomware gangs. We saw that, of course, in Colonial Pipeline uh, last year. We saw it with JBS Foods. We, we saw it with Kaseya Software. We saw it with a myriad of attacks on all manner of critical infrastructure. And so uh, I think we need to be very mindful that this might not be a direct uh, attack against our critical infrastructure, but it could be an unintended one, or it could be one uh, that a ransomware gang does that may give the Kremlin a patina of plausible deniability. Uh, but I think we are still in a, in a time where we need to keep our shields up and remain vigilant to potential uh, disruptive activity. Well, you certainly have enough to worry about it, uh, keep you up at night. Um, you, one of the things you're doing on the defensive side that seems to me to be admirable is trying to get closer to private industry and encourage more sharing. Um, traditionally, a big problem with that has been the tendency to classify things and the restraints of the security clearance process, which I must say I've regarded it as much more cumbersome and costly than it should be. Um, is that a big problem for you and how do you address it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting point. You know, I spent 
as I said, over two decades in the government, went off to the private sector through the private sector clearance program, which we sponsor. Uh, I kept my top secret clearance. I used it once, Richard, in my four and a half years at Morgan Stanley. Uh, It didn't really give me anything that I could share because, of course, it was highly classified, so it wasn't really actionable. Uh, And frankly, I don't Having been on that side of it, while I think strategically there are insights that are useful, I think what a network defender is looking for is information that they can use uh, that is relevant, that is actionable, that is timely, that can let them uh, very capably strengthen the security and resilience of their network. So again, I think at the strategic level, you can get some context uh, from classified information. And that's what we did uh, starting in late November. We provided high-level classified briefings for those who had clearances. But I think what people are really looking for is the ability to rapidly declassify information. And I think the government is doing more and more of that because I've long thought that we historically overclassify things. And so even over the last few months, you can see a very deliberate effort uh, on the part of the government to declassify information uh, of all sorts to include cyber-related information so that we can get that in the hands uh, of the defenders who really uh, need it so that, so that they can help to mitigate the impact of any threat. So we do still sponsor companies for clearances, but my big push is let's get it out of classified channels so that it can be actioned and used effectively. I really applaud that push. Are you often, though, banging, for example, into instances in which you have classified sources providing you with examples of malware that you want to share, but your the intelligence side of the house strongly resists that? No, actually, Good. Uh, uh, we really don't. In fact, we've got fantastic partners um, with Uh, the intelligence community who really get the fact that if there is information that we have that can help defend, in particular, critical infrastructure or our .gov, we're we're responsible for protecting and defending critical infrastructure, of course, with our private sector partners, because we really don't own much of anything, as well as federal civilian executive branch or the .gov. We work very closely and uh, you know, that's not, frankly, Richard, the type of information that the intelligence community wants to hold on to. Yep. Uh, they want to hold on to things that um, where they're protecting sources and methods. There's a way uh, that they can provide that type of technical indicators, signatures, malware um, in a way that I think will not compromise uh, any of the exquisite collection that helps us understand more strategic level insights. I think it says something about my talents as an interviewer that when you have a million problems, I managed to ask you about the one thing that isn't a problem, but it's good to hear. <laughs> um, let's talk about the government workforce for a minute. Uh, do you, what's your sense of our ability to recruit and especially to retain uh, people who are particularly skilled about cybersecurity? Are there initiatives from your standpoint that might improve our position? Yeah, there are, which is good news. You know, one of the things coming back from uh, industry where I could hire amazing talent in 60 days. Uh, Now, of course, in finance, you're paying them a lot of money. But at the end of the day, 
I'm trying to do a, a couple things. First of all, worrying about the, not worrying about, but the opportunity to build the CISA workforce, right? We're America's cyber defense agency. And so one of my two big goals when I got here was build the culture and build the talent management ecosystem, which as you said, is more than just recruiting. It's also retention. And that's about uh, bringing people on, onboarding them, in integrating them into culture, mentoring and coaching and certification and training and mobility opportunities, all of which lead to uh, retaining top talent. And so we are building really a talent management ecosystem uh, and putting a lot of work into that. One of the great tools that we got uh, in November of last year is something called the Cyber Talent, talent Management System, CTMS. And what that allows us to do is to hire much more flexibly, so not go through the 27 steps of bureaucracy that you need to go through to hire people, typically into the government. It's not specific to, to us, it's really all over the government, but the Congress recognized there's no way we're gonna be able to bring on this type of talent unless we can be more flexible and unless we can pay closer to market. So now, you know, we can pay up to, in some cases, specialized cases, more than $300,000 for somebody. And that's great compared to what the government can pay. And so we are really trying to flex our muscle with these new authorities, bringing people in uh, from the private sector, people who, you know, and frankly, as you know, um, uh, because you serve for a long time, nobody comes to the government to make money, right? And so... Uh, people come because they want to raise their hand to support and defend the Constitution. They want to serve. They want to defend America. And, you know, cyber is really uh, the space where it's incredibly complex, dynamic, dangerous. It really is the frontier where we are going to see um, the most challenging and difficult problems. So people who come in who really want to make a difference. Uh, but we do want to make sure that we are able to give them uh, a greater level of compensation. And the other thing is we recognize that this generation of folks that are coming in, they're not like you and me. They're not going to come in necessarily for 25 years. They're probably going to come in for three years. They want to serve their country. Then they're going to go back out. Maybe they want to come back in. But I think it's also a recognition that that is, uh, that, that is a great thing because in cyber, uniquely, you know, the federal government doesn't have a monopoly on, on uh, power, right? This is all about how do we work with the private sector? How do we work with state and local to be able to defend the nation? Uh, it's all about collective defense. So if I bring somebody in, I train them, they understand how CISA operates, they learn technical skills, and they go back out in the private sector and help to defend critical infrastructure, that's goodness all around. And so we are really trying to come into this with a different mindset about how we are building our cyber workforce here at CISA and how we're building it across the country. I think it's just so admirable, um, given your exposure to the military world, I just would add that there is so much on the civilian side that you're doing, but a big part of the equation is the military. And in the military, what you said is exactly right. Um, people are attracted by the opportunity for responsibility for doing work they care. They're not here if they're, uh, have, uh, if they're in it for the money because the civilian options are stronger. But what happens, unfortunately, is that the military career, and you know this better than I do, frequently requires enlisted men and women and even more so officers uh, to uh, stop doing cyber in order to be promoted. 
So in effect, because we have an up or out system, they're told, if you really want to do this, uh, you need to leave. Uh, and that strikes me as a fundamental flaw. I don't know if that rings true for you and if you're able to nudge the system from where you are in better directions. Well, certainly in um, in the civilian world, in civilian cyber, that's, that's not an issue. Right. On the military side, you know, it's interesting having seen the evolution of this, right? So I stood up the Army's first cyber battalion in 2008 worked with Paul Nakasone and TJ White and SL Davis in 2009 to 2010, working with Keith Alexander to stand up US CyberCom. Back then there was no cyber stuff. You know, there was no Army Cyber or Navy Cyber, 10th Fleet or Air Force Cyber. There was no cyber branch. And so it really was this combination of you were neither an Intel officer or you were a signal officer in the Army anyway. And as I was mentioning to you earlier, I just went up to West Point last weekend uh, for a West Point Women's Conference and was interviewed by a young lieutenant who was wearing Cyber Branch. So now they've developed uh, a branch where you can commission as a second lieutenant and uh, go throughout your entire career serving in cyber. And so they really have developed this pipeline of uh, uh, an entire career where you don't have to worry about, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this my whole career. You could ostensibly go up and end up being the commander of U.S. Cyber Command. And so I think what they've done over the past 10 years is really a recognition that uh, we need to look at this and make investments uh, as a as a domain um, that we, we really need to have a full range of expertise in. And the other thing that's cool actually, because we talked about this, is you know, people who have the hacking mindset and you know, may have done it in, in whatever, in high school, um, you know, things like uh, if they have tattoos, right? They couldn't get in the army before. And so all of these types of standards now have been a little bit relaxed to be able to both attract and retain people who um, have that type of problem solving and maybe slightly different mindset uh, that people have in cyber. And so I, I just think, you know, there's been some really important changes that have happened over the past 10 years. And I'm taking some of that and making sure that we are infusing it into what we're building as America's civilian cyber defense agency. Well, it's great to hear about that. I'm, I'm afraid our time has about run out. Uh... I would just observe that uh, some time ago, I think it was Bruce Schneier uh, said that um, we were getting better in cybersecurity, but the problem was we were getting worse faster. And watching your work, I, uh, I really do think we are beginning to get better at rates of speed that are beginning to equal the rates of growth of the problem. I wish we were more ahead of it, um, but one thing's for sure, we're further ahead of it because of what you've been doing than we would have been otherwise. So thank you so very much. Um, and uh, I think we'll turn the program back to the Purple Hat uh, crowd en masse. Thank you, Jen. Yep, thanks so much, Richard.